and a connoisseur of sermons and church services and someone who probably much like yourself, I've been to church most of the Sundays of my life and I've been around for a lot of Reformation days. I feel a little weird confessing to you that I don't actually like Reformation Day church very much. Um, I love the songs. I love the songs. And I love the red. We don't get to have red banners enough, I think. And I love how excited and, like, proud and bubbly Lutherans are around Reformation time. Like, haha, we did something good. <laughs> like, I like that. Um, but I don't like the actual church part. Specifically, I don't like the sermons. I don't like Reformation Day sermons. And there's two reasons why I don't usually like Reformation Day sermons. One, um, usually the, the, the talking that happens during the sermon spot on a Reformation Day is not actually a sermon. I don't know if you know this, but for it to be a sermon, you actually have to talk about Jesus or else it's not, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. And a lot of times Reformation Day sermons are sermons about Martin Luther or they're, or they're sermons about and against the Pope or, or more likely they're just history lectures. They're not actually doing the thing that a sermon's supposed to do. When you come here and you hear someone talk during this time of worship, you're supposed to hear about Jesus. You're supposed to hear again the promises that he's made to you. And just like the songs and just like the prayers and just like the words we speak, everything about the message, just like everything else about everything else in church, is supposed to reinforce who you are in Christ. It's supposed to remind you and strengthen and deepen your trust in someone that calls you someone special to him. We are whatever he says we are. And you come here on Sundays to hear again what it is he says you are, so that you can trust him more, so that you can live in that more deeply. And a lot of times Reformation sermons aren't that. But, but there's another reason why I don't like Reformation sermons. Because even if you were going to do that, even if you were going to set aside some time, because maybe it's beneficial, maybe it's helpful, maybe not everybody here knows much about the Reformation. So maybe we would be, you know, good to use our time to explain it to people. Even so, sometimes I go 45 minutes. <laughs> Look at this. This is... <clears throat> one of the books <laughs> that I read for one of the classes that I took about the Lutheran Reformation while well, I was at seminary. This is my favorite one. I love Carter Lindbergh. I love what he's doing. And just, just take a peek at this. These are all of the words that Carter Lindbergh says trying to explain what's going on in the Reformation, trying to give you the helpful, necessary context, trying to flesh out and do a proper job treating all of the issues and things that came up, talking about all the connections. That's a lot of words. <laughs> I can't say what Carter Lindbergh says in this book in 45 minutes. And Carter Lindbergh is just one book for one of the classes that I took trying to understand and wrap my mind around. If I wanted to give you a history lesson, if I wanted to explain the Reformation to you today, there's not enough time. Can't do it. That's not to say that Reformation sermons have to be bad. <laughs> and I hope that this one won't be. <laughs> but I'm not going to 
talk to you about Martin Luther or the Pope, and I'm not going to try to explain what the Reformation was and why it was so important. Actually, if you want to know about that, though, we're going to have a Bible study on Wednesday mornings later on in November, and we're going to be watching the new Luther movie in manageable chunks and then discussing it in length. So if you're interested in that kind of thing and you can miss work during the 9.30, 10.30 hour on Wednesday mornings, come on over. <laughs> Here's what I am going to do, though, because I think, it's, I think it's necessary. I think it's helpful. I am not going to tell you what happened in the Reformation, but I am going to tell you exactly what the Reformation was about. The Reformation was about being able to know what Scripture actually says and being willing to trust in that above everything else. And so the Reformers, all of them, they were trying to make it possible for themselves and for generations after them to actually know what scripture says and then trust in that above anything else. Given that, it makes sense that every single year on Reformation Day, we have the exact same gospel lesson. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Sometimes it's the same one every single year. Sometimes pastors just choose to preach on something else because it's the same one every single year. But it's a good one. Did, were you listening when Pastor Dell read it to us? It's only like five verses long. And it's a good one. Before I just tell you what it is and what it means, though, I want you to imagine something for me. I want you, if, you, if this doesn't weird you out, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to picture yourself in an old-timey dungeon. Can you, like, feel the cold, damp air? Can you smell the musty, wet rock smell? Can you feel the hard stone floors and walls? Your neck is chained to the wall behind you. Your hands and feet are shackled together to themselves. If you're wearing clothes, they're rags. They're torn up and they're wet. They don't smell good. And if you've eaten anything in the last few days, what you've eaten is other people's garbage, just scraps that are thrown in towards you if you can even reach that far away from the wall. Time passes differently there, and so you're not really sure how long you've been there. But you've been there long enough that you don't really remember life before this. You don't remember really what it was like to not be here. You've tried everything in your power. You're hoping that, that the chains are just rusty enough or just weak enough that you could break out of them, that you could pull them apart or that you could maybe slip out of them. You've tried everything you can to wrestle yourself free from the wall, from the chains, from the cell. But as far as you can tell, you're stuck. You're not sure how long the hallway is. You're not sure how, how big of a corridor it is or how many little nooks are carved into this rock, how many cells there are. But you know that there's at least a couple other people because you've heard them trying to break free too. You've heard their grunts and their struggles. And you haven't heard them celebrate. And so you're pretty sure that just like you... There's been no success in anybody freeing themselves from this condition. 
So you've pretty much just resigned yourself to the idea that you're going to die here, that this is the way that it is for the rest of your natural life. And this is all you'll know until you stop breathing. One day there's a commotion at the end of the corridor and you can't see what's going on but you hear the clanking of metal on metal and you hear scuffling and you hear whispering and you hear someone talking and you hear excitement and you can't see what's happening but there's a guy in the corridor and he's got the keys to all the gates and all the shackles and he's flinging every door open and he's undoing every cuff And in each room, he keeps saying to the people there the same invitation. And when he gets to your doorway, he says it to you. He says, come on, follow me. Listen to my word. Follow my instruction. Go where I go and and, and hear me and follow me because I've come to set you free. I've come to get you out of this place. What would your response be to that would-be liberator? <laughs> would you say, I'm not, I'm not really sure what you're talking about, dude, but I'm not even that captive. <laughs> like, I'm not even that imprisoned. <laughs> Our gospel lesson for today says that Jesus, says that there was this group of Israelites that actually believed in Jesus. They believed in him. And Jesus says to them, if you remain in my word, if you stay put in my teaching, then you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And they say to him, thanks, but no thanks. (laughs) In fact, they say to him, well, we are descendants of Abraham We've never been slaves to anyone. We've never been enslaved. So why is it that you say that what you've come to do is to set us free? We're not enslaved. Can't you do any of the other things that we were hoping you were going to do? Look, we believe in you. We know you're the Messiah. We know you've come to do something for us and to us and in us and through us. But can it not be that? Because we don't need that. We're free enough. We're not even that in bondage. We don't need to be freed, which is cute because Rome, like literally while they're talking about this, they are under military occupation. In fact, they've been under the thumb of one global military superpower after the next for centuries with no breaks. The, the, the fact that they say we are Abraham's descendants and therefore have never been slaves to anyone doesn't even make sense. Because the term Abraham's descendants to any Sunday school kid is like synonymous with slaves. Like that's what you think of when you think of the people that Abraham's family grew into. You think of slaves. They were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years until God convinced Moses to participate with his plan for liberation. Being in bondage is like the thing they do. In fact, that's the whole reason why they're even having this conversation in the first place. That's why they're standing around talking to one another. Because there's a religious ceremony going on 
that Jesus was teaching at, that these people believing in him were listening to him at, it was like, it was like a week-long religious ceremony. You go to church every day, and what you do is you start off, this, they're at the Festival of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. They are, it's like the, the, the Coachella of church. They're, they're camping. It's a religious camping festival. They're out on the hillside just outside the city, and they're staying in little bivouacs, little dwellings, little tents, popped up tents all over the hillside. And every morning they wake up, they roll out of their tent and they go into the city and they go to the temple and they hear someone teach about the time when the Israelites were being rescued from Egypt and they hadn't yet tasted, they hadn't yet experienced the freedom that God had for them. And in the midst of all of that, in the meantime, they were dwelling with God in the wilderness, waiting for him to bring him into the freedom that he had promised them. They're celebrating this event, this, this in the meantime, dwelling with God as you wait for him to give you freedom. That's what they're celebrating. And, and in the midst of that, Jesus is saying to them, he's trying to teach them, look, the, the, this Israel history, that's, that's real, but it was, always, it was always an object lesson too. Yes, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, but, but that was pointing to something bigger. Yes, God rescued them literally from Egypt and gave them a new place, literally. Yes, that happened, but that was always pointing to something bigger. And Jesus is trying to tell them, like, I am the fulfillment of that bigger thing. Yeah, Israel were slaves in Egypt, but there's a worse slavery than that. And yeah, they were absolutely freed from that, but there's a better freedom than that, and it's me. And so he says to them, while they're celebrating dwelling with God— and, and talking about freedom, he says to them, if you dwell in my word, I will make you free. Abide, remain, continue in. Meno is the Greek word. If you camp out in my word, I will make you free. And they say, thanks, but no thanks. We're free enough. Look at this next slide. Do you know what this word means? Autonomy. How many vocabulary nerds are there in the room? Yeah. Autonomy, kind of something like self-governance, right? Yeah, the ability to do what you want to do. If I were to ask you the question, how free are you? <laughs> I mean, as Americans, we want to say completely free, but we know that that's not technically true. Like, if, if autonomy is our measure of freedom, if the ability to do what we want to do is how we decide how free we are, then the answer to the question, how free are you, is sort of free. More or less free, right? Because we are able to do what we want to do some of the time. So here's a tricky question. Does being more free, does living in greater freedom today than you were in yesterday, does being more free mean having more autonomy? Does it mean being able to do more of the things that you want to do? And if it does, is, is being completely free, being free indeed, 
the promise that we have as Christians, does being completely free mean being completely autonomous? Only ever having to do what we want to do. You know I ask trick questions, so you know the answer is no. That's not what freedom means, and it has to do with having to do. Measuring freedom for a Christian isn't about having more and more things that you can do. Measuring freedom for a Christian is about having less and less things that you have to do. Does that make sense? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it a little bit, but, but are you kind of tracking with me so far? It's not about counting up all the things that you're able to say yes to. Measuring your freedom, saying how free are you, is about counting up the things that you aren't able to say no to. How free you are is determined by how many things you aren't able to say no to. Have you ever wanted to do something that was bad for you? You don't have to raise your hand. (laughs) It's okay. Have you ever wanted to do something that was bad for you, even though you knew it was bad for you? Have you ever gone ahead and done the thing that you knew was bad for you, even though it was bad for you, because you wanted to do it? Yes. For us, freedom isn't about being allowed to do more of what we want. Freedom is being able to not do what we want. Think about it. Of course, you're free. You have freedom of speech, right? Welcome to America. Welcome to humanity. Like, of course you are free to speak your mind. You can say whatever you want. If you're thinking something about me right now, there's nothing I can do to stop you from saying what you're thinking about me. You could stand up right now and just tell me all the things you're thinking about me. I can't stop you. No one can stop you. But that's not what makes you free. Because are you really free if you can't stop you from saying everything you're thinking? If you have to do what you want to do, are you free? It's like, this is a sillier example, but how you spend your money. Of course, you're free to do whatever you want with what belongs to you. Of course you are. But you're not free because you can choose to spend your money on whatever you want to spend it on. And you're not free if... You can't control your desire to collect more and more material possessions. Like, for us, for you and for me, the measure of our freedom is not, it's not being able to do what we want. It's being able to not do what we want. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. Because there are times that that what we want is not actually good for us. 
And when we do what we want, even when we know that it's bad for us or bad for others, that's what it means to be a slave to sin. To do what you want to do, even when you know that it's bad for you. (laughs) You know that it's bad for others. Jesus says anyone who does that is bound to that. And then Jesus is standing at the open door of our cell, swinging a key around his finger. (laughs) Look at this slide. Jesus says it's the truth that will actually make you. It's the truth that will actually make you free. And he says, we will realize the truth as we remain in his word. As we keep hearing him. As you and I camp out in the promise that he spoke over us. As we dwell in the message of the gospel. As we remain in the knowledge that God is our father and he loves us as precious children as we abide in the words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins, as we stay put in the identity that he gave us at our baptism, the identity that gets reinforced week after week by our hymns and by our messages and by our Bible studies and by our prayers, as we stay put, he remains us. The, the Lutheran distinctive is that all the verbs are God's verbs. Even when he tells us to remain, the Lutheran distinction is that he remains us. When he tells us to stay put, he stays put you. He stays you put. He keeps you. (laughs) He holds on. He never lets go. And as the years go by, you realize more and more the truth that is actually setting you free. And this is the truth. This next slide. The truth that sets you free is you don't have to do what you want to do. You are being transformed little by little day by day, from the inside out, by the power of the Holy Spirit that he put inside you, you don't have to say everything you think. And that changes everything. (laughs) You don't have to chase down every desire, and your life is never the same because of that. You don't feed every one of your appetites. You don't follow yourself. You follow God. You're not your own God. He is. The truth that makes you free is hearing him say to you again today, you are free. Galatians 5, for freedom Christ has set you free. Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Jesus, the law of the spirit that gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. John 8, if the son sets you free, You are freed indeed. We're going to respond together to the word of God with our statement of faith. We're going to sing the story of salvation together. So instead of saying the words of the Apostles' Creed together, we're going to sing the story of salvation together. So would you please stand and join?